Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Spartan Speak, a podcast from the Lansing State Journal and Detroit Free Press focused on Michigan State sports. I'm Phil Friend, your host, producer, and sports writer for LSJ, joined this week by Detroit Free Press Michigan State beat writer Chris Solari and Lansing State Journal sports storyteller Nate Atkins. Whew, didn't mess it up that time, uh, so... I am working on it. So thank you for joining us again for at least the second straight week. Might be the third straight week. Might be third in four weeks. You know, time time is relative. It, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm just impressed with your memory to slow down and get through that title. <laughs> this milestone. That was that was on one take too. So yeah, I know. I kind of wish I just would. Next week I'll just try it 100 miles an hour, and uh, we'll see we'll see how many times I stumble trying to say sports storyteller without. Uh, Without messing it up, but uh, how are you guys doing tonight? Not too bad, considering it's only three thirty in the afternoon. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's not night yet, man. Don't... Yes, it's interesting from you, Phil. I thought this is more like morning in your clock of the world, but <laughs> uh, maybe it looks kind of like night because it's all very stormy outside and got like super war of the world, war of the world's dark there for like a half hour, but uh, it's all good. Yeah, I did wake up at ten thirty today, so. We're getting closer back to those times of old where I just like roll out of bed like eleven thirty or twelve. But back when I was a, a producer working three to eleven every night, so I even think we got to itch maybe back the other way here here a little bit and just put myself through a couple like three or four hour nights of sleep to get back on track. Well, we're moving away from night games, so that's kind of a natural flow. I was getting into oh, a bad. Don't habit put that too. out there. Don't put that out there, Nate. <laughs> we're moving away from these last two weeks. Keep it there. There's still a game in two weeks from now that uh, could end up being a night game. So that's one that, you know, is, is because of the way that the, the, the Michigan game can just be crazy and chaotic. Um, that's one as a reporter, you don't mind being at noon. Um, but I remember the 2015 game uh, with the, the punt drop was around a three thirty game and I can, can recall Joe Rexroad in near panic as everything transpired and kind of looking down and I'm like, oh, glad I'm not the beat writer on this one. <laughs> so this is selfish me saying as long as it's not three 30 though, I, I I'm fine with that because one, it, and people don't quite understand this, like the print deadline of a three 30 game makes it really complex. Night games just mean long nights, early mornings, noon games mean you can be home and, really just start your Sunday early. That's about all that it means. So it's just about shifting when you can, when you do things on well, two weeks, it's going to be about more than just the sports writers too, because that's Michigan, Michigan state. And for the health and safety of every, everybody in East Lansing and surrounding areas, I hope they put that at noon. I like your community concern. I, I suspect that if they, both teams remain undefeated, which certainly seems like a possibility, uh, 
this will almost certainly be a night game. So I would say we should probably prepare for the worst. And and you're starting to see, I mean, Michigan State and Michigan Twitter are, are always going, butting heads against each other. But it's really gone a whole new level already this week. And we still got two plus two weeks. Yeah, two plus weeks until that game happens. So oh, it's, it's not as bad as Iowa and everybody else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kirk Ferentz going after a 2011 game against Michigan State while trying to go after Penn State and James Franklin going after Kirk Ferentz and Pat Narduzzi jumping into, I mean, it's like cats and dogs living together right now. I have no idea what's going on when Pat Narduzzi is defending James Franklin. <laughs> yeah, we're halfway through the season, so I guess everyone's getting a little, people are trying to get in position for certain things when it comes to bowl games in the postseason, so everything's getting a little chippy, it uh, seems like. It is. I, I'm but, interested to see how the, the chippiness starts in a week, because I remember last year heading into that Michigan-Michigan State week when Mel Tucker dropped the uh, school down the road line and um, and ever since they pulled that game off even though it was one of their two wins I, I swear every time I got a photo from uh, Mel Tucker's house when he's hosting recruits or the Spartan Dog Con or whatever it was that game was playing on replay on the TVs so um, it's it's he's gonna have something in store for that week and rile some people up and uh, we'll see how they it'll be one of those though if they're both undefeated Whoever wins that game, that'll be their first kind of validation game. So that fan base is going to kind of go off the rails. And, um, you know, while the other team might only have one loss and still be ranked, they'll have to listen to that other team parading for uh, for as long as they do. So could get uh, could get a little weird. It's going to be an interesting – and these next three or so weeks uh, really are going to be about how much these buys mean. I, I think, you know, obviously Michigan State's got Indiana coming off a bye this week goes on their bye next week with Michigan on a bye this week, then Michigan has to play Michigan State coming off its bye. So those – interesting quirks in the schedule, um, you know, those buys give coaches chances to to put things in that, that t- opponents haven't seen, um, gives teams a chance to rest and, and heal up some injuries. Indiana's obviously got a few uh, with Michael Penix and uh, uh, the, the defensive back. I think Tawan Marshall. Um, so they've got they've got some 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 bang ups that they've got to deal with as well. So um, or Tawan Mullen, sorry, not Marshall, Tawan Mullen. Um, so they've got some. I mean, that's it'll be interesting to see if, if any of those guys play. And I, I I went back to the couple years ago when you know Michigan State. I'm pretty sure was preparing to face Peyton Ramsey and really put a lot of prep in, into him, and then Penix comes out and throws for 320 on them and nearly beats them. Yeah, and those are, I mean, those might be their two best players coming into the year. We would have said that outside of Ty Freifogel. I know Michael Penix has not played that way, but uh, it is a different deal when when it's kind of a deal like this where I think they're expecting Jack Tuttle to start for Indiana. I would imagine at least Michigan State is preparing in that mindset, and it is a lot easier when you do it that way rather than have a guy announced out at the last second. Yet at the same point, Tom Allen isn't announcing it. So, you know, coaches love to control the the narrative, and you know, it, it, it's almost as if they think they're keeping secrets, but so much gets around. I mean, you know, that's you know that that's I, I don't know if, I, if it's naivete of coaches or just the controlling nature, but I mean, when you see betting lines fluctuating. Word is getting around about injuries or not injuries. So. Yeah, and where was the where's the Indiana reporter to uh, put themselves uh, high up in an adjacent building to spy on a football practice with the binoculars to get the to get the starting QB info? That's just that's just slacking right there. 
Still a basketball school. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, what, what did you what do you guys make of that? The, the Caleb Williams, Oklahoma thing where the student reporter went up, uh, went to an adjacent building and binoculars and saw who was playing. And now Rick Leak and Riley cancels his press coverage, which I sort of think you were alluding to, Chris, a minute, a minute and a half ago. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't want to devote too much time sure, to it, sure. but, you know, because I could because we could. And that's I just think that it, it, it's quite literally. Listen, this isn't a, a one time thing with Lincoln Riley or any football coach trying to control access control vision i mean there's reason that there are steel doors around michigan state's outdoor practice facility i remember walking by there as a freshman in 1993 and you know you try and peek through a uh, fence that had like tarps over it and they would have graduate assistants posted around the fences shooing people away i mean it's football dudes i mean <laughs> you know it, it it's not like there isn't tape it's not like there isn't film back then it's not like there isn't digital files where everybody sees this stuff and it's you know but i back to pat narduzzi back in 2015 when i went down to pit um right around this time of year to to do a story on him their practice facility is right by this is they share it with the steelers and it's right by a railroad tracks and on the other side of the railroad tracks is a really high hill and I remember I was walking around the field joking with one of the graduate assistants. Uh, I think it was Brad Salem's nephew. And I said, uh, I said, do you guys worry about people going up there and, and trying to shoot video of your practice? He's like, oh, yeah, we're worried about that. And he, he, I was joking. He was dead serious. And that's, that's how football coaches are. Meanwhile, Tom Izzo has anybody in to watch his basketball practice that wants to see it, right? Bye. That is just part of the culture of football coaches, and it's hilarious to me once someone finally does something that's not like that and everyone kind of loses their mind. Uh, just real quick, the story I always tell on that front is when I was uh, just out of college, I was covering the Bears, and uh, they were playing a game against the Broncos. We were talking to Gary Kubiak, the coach at the time, and we'd asked something about DeMarcus Ware, who was in the state of like he's practicing, but we don't know if he's going to play. And Gary Kubiak just comes out and he says, no, DeMarcus is just practicing, doing some things. He's not going to be able to play on Sunday. We kind of like broke that news, even just as Bears reporters. And uh, so he gave that away four days in advance. Broncos won the game. They won the Super Bowl. And um, ever since then, and certainly every time I see it, I believe that competitive advantage is the most kind of overthought and uh, concocted fantasy in football. Yeah. Well, let's go. Let's go back a couple of years. And. And the guys on the beat love it when I bring this up. And I and by love it, I mean they're sick of me bringing it up. Michigan State in 2018 comes off the loss at Arizona State in 108-degree heat. They lose Jake Hartbarger for the season. Rocky Lombardi goes out for punt all that week. Mark D'Antonio upsells. Rocky Lombardi's going to be our punter moving forward. And then we get to Indiana. And we get to Indiana, and there are four. Four dudes in warm-ups wearing the number 12. Four. Um, Nick Crum, Rocky Lombardi, Bryce Berenger, and Tyler Hunt. They were trying to disguise who was going to be the punter. As if anybody on the Indiana staff watching that didn't have binoculars to look at the names on the back of these jerseys, right? Referees made them change two of their jerseys because you can only have Two guys wearing jerseys. But someone's coming off a loss. Someone spent time that week thinking about, let's put four guys in number 12, and let's disguise the punter 
and let's print out a roster that had number 12, four number 12s on it. And then they had to reprint a roster. We got a second roster in the press box changing the numbers. So, I mean, you're right, Nate. The overthought that goes into this stuff sometimes is just absurd. That I, I was livid in the press box, not so much because of that, but it's just like, who are you kidding? Who are you trying to fool? I've got binoculars. I'm looking at these ni- names on the back of your jerseys. We know who they are. Indiana's got people on the field looking at the names on the back of the jerseys. What's what's the thought process that this is going to fool or trick anyone? I don't know. On a, on a game day warm-ups. And to think disguising your punter is like this great secretive edge that's going to be the difference. That's always what's hilarious to me is they want to squeeze out every last little inch of preparation and think that they, they could just work harder and, and outwork these other teams and outsmart them. And I just go back to something Bruce Arians said that's kind of similar to that, but a little bit different. But he talked about coaches who sleep in the office trying to figure out all this stuff. He's like, man, this game is not that hard. If you have to sleep in the office the night before a game, you don't have a clue in the first place. And that guy just won the Super Bowl, too. So it can be done. Well, I I sort of understand why Mel Tucker and his staff want to keep the practice field covered because, I mean, they've got to devise another way to do a flea flicker, you know? You know what? We never really covered the whole thing at at, at, uh, Oklahoma with that kind of kind of I tangent at all. I tangentially took us away. But I mean, that uh, listen, Lincoln Riley had dorm rooms. In, in Oklahoma's campus system, they had the windows covered with opaque stuff, like opaque film right. uh, a year or two ago, so students couldn't see it. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I mean, so there is a history of that going on there. So do you, I mean, is it really that important? I mean, I, I think the bigger news was they got Rattler's dad on the phone talking about what his situation would be moving forward. Um, so that's, you know, is it is it standing up there watching it from binoculars? Probably not. But, you know, probably, I mean, from a coaching standpoint, yeah. But to me, the bit more important thing was they, they had the backup quarterback, now backup quarterback's dad, saying, yeah, he's going to stick it out, and then we'll see what's next. That, that, to me, was the bigger news there. Backup quarterbacks uh, kind of being the theme here, as, uh, as Nate alluded to, IU or Indiana, depending where you are, where you're calling them, uh, will be playing – they're back, likely playing their backup quarterback in Jack Tuttle on Saturday. And sort of like a week ago for the Spartans, this is another revenge game of sorts. And if you'll remember last year's game, and I'm sure you do, a 24 nothing game in which, in which Michigan State, especially its offense, was completely lifeless. And, and Penix uh, you know, threw all over. Obviously, we don't think Penix is going to play this weekend. But the Freifogel had a huge game. That week, and obviously he's back for the Spart or excuse me, back for the Hoosiers. So uh, for Michigan State, it's another easy way to motivate them this week. I think. Yeah, yeah that was a game where it was like a lot of uh, yards and a lot of plays given up, not a lot of points, which is ideally how Michigan State wants to play defense. Now they don't want to score zero points. It's a big difference between this year and last year. Is this offense has taken a complete one eighty to the point where teams are trying to come back on them, and so this bend but don't break style. Um, plays a little bit better because it wastes time and it makes you settle for three when your offense is scoring seven. So if they can do that, I mean, they'll they'll be fine with that game on, on the defensive side playing out the same way. Ty Freifogel can get as many yards as he wants as long as they're chasing points. But I don't know how easy it'll be. I mean, I, I, I guess it depends on if Taiwan Mullen's going to play because I think he, he might be their best player on that side of the ball for Indiana. But uh Right now, it's been hard for anyone to stop down, to slow down Michigan State, and it's it just has this feeling where 
Um, even if you do it with one guy, like like if you can do it with Kenneth Walker, you can do it with Jalen Naylor. There's just too many pivots they have right now for a good defense to take them all away. Yeah, and it's the same. I mean, the same offensive line that they got 191 yards last year in that game. 191 for the entire game. And I mean, Jalen Naylor had that himself in a half. And, and Kenneth Walker in the second half last week had it. I do think that he had half of it on one play. Yeah. He'd have that on one play. You're right. Uh, they had 60 yards on the ground. He he eclipsed that on one run too. Um, so, you know, that game last year, I mean, it, it is, it, it was one of the, probably outside of the seven turnovers against Rutgers, their second worst game. Because I, I don't necessarily count the Ohio State game because that's what Ohio State does to teams, especially teams that are I- inferior. And last year's Michigan State team was certainly inferior to that Ohio State team. But Michigan State's been doing that this year to teams that they need to beat. They've been putting up well, yards. They've been putting up points. Um, early. I can think of one worse game than that, Iowa. Yeah, the Iowa game was pretty bad too. But that that was one of those ones that kind of unraveled quick. Uh, you know, in in a, in a segment. Um, this this game though, I mean, you know, they they had moved the ball a little bit in that Iowa game, and then everything just kind of shut down. And they started turning the ball over. This was start to finish. They they were checked out, and, and that's not that's something that Mel Tucker has not done since. I mean, they they competed okay in most of those other games since. Um, you know, un, until this year, obviously it's a, a significantly different thing. But um, you know, the second half offense for this team right now is is, is troublesome because you are going to run into some games like that Nebraska game and and. and down the stretch, and in, in, especially in the Big Ten, you got to be able to put points up. You can't – outside of the, the Walker run, I think he, he he ran for, what, 94 yards on that touchdown run. They're, the rest of their possessions in that half were abysmal. And, and quite honestly, they were set back on that, and it, it could have been outside of that individual performance with some pretty complimentary pieces in the blocking. Um, you know, the second half was almost – the same, if not worse, than uh, the the Western Kentucky game. So you got to be able to to do that. They're cognizant of it too. Um, you know, you got to be able to come out of halftime and and continue to add to it. You can't. And I think this is where Mel Tucker has talked about the need for improvement. You can't just settle on scoring and moving the ball big in the first half because it, sooner or later that will come back to bite you. Yeah, it's one of those where I mean, can you? Can you continually answer the punches? And Rutgers does not have enough punches to give to make you have to do that. Indiana, we'll see. I mean, it's on one hand, obviously Michael Penix, we thought coming into the year was going to be their best chance to do that to teams. He hasn't played super well. Um, Jack Tuttle is a former four-star recruit who last year you know, had one really good game against Wisconsin and one not so good game against Ole Miss. But you know, he's working with Ty Freifogel, and we saw what he did to Michigan State last year. It's there's. There's a chance here that this works for Indiana. They're just a, a very hard team for me to read because of just some of the injuries that are going on right now. Um, they they kind of feel like a team that that last year um, they kind of caught lightning in a bottle just with some other teams being down. Michigan, Michigan State um, got them off to this nice start. They played well enough against Ohio State that it all kind of for this short segmented season got them to believe in that version of that team. 
this year has not had any kind of momentum for them so far. And they're 0-2 in the Big Ten, so it's kind of like they're in desperation mode. So I don't know. Um, if they come out and they look bad in this game, I think you have to conclude, well, you know, th- this just isn't a good team. And last year was it was either a fluke or there's just they just fell off a cliff. But this could also be a, a game where it, where it turns a little bit. Yeah, and, and their schedule really – has kind of played a factor in that too. Their three losses are to number two, Iowa, number four, Cincinnati, and number eight, Penn State. And they're playing number nine, Michigan State this week. So I think it is a, a combination of all of those factors. I mean, they, they also certainly haven't looked as good in those games as they did in the games they won last year as well. Don't don't discount the Tom Allen factor in this as well because Tom Allen is a, a hell of a defensive coach and, and has been. I mean, that's really, you know, when Indiana was – putting up all those points and moving fast. They couldn't stop anyone until they hired Tom Allen and Allen brought stability to it and then kind of worked his way into that situation when, when everything happened um, there, you know, with the previous coach and he he's, he's a motivator. I mean, he, he that's, I think one thing to, to keep in mind. He's, he's a great motivator, but he's a good tactical defensive coach and I think on the offensive side the other thing to keep in mind if you got a quarterback who's coming in fresh you better keep an eye on Peyton Hendershot and Michigan State's over the middle defense with tight ends has struggled um you know that's that's been something that has been an issue you know linebackers and coverage and 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 Hendershot it to me is is kind of one of those underrated weapons um and, and you know he's kind of underrated among the Big Ten tight ends but He's a guy that has made plays historically against Michigan State and has been a target in their passing game. So that's to, if I'm if I'm Scotty Hazelton, I'm I'm putting Fry Fogel and Hendershot as my one and two in the in the scheme that you better shut them down and then let anybody else beat you. Yeah, and really with Indiana, I mean the, the disappointment this year has been all offensive, and yet you bring up a good point, Phil, because not only is their schedule filled with tough teams, but those. Other three games against Iowa, Cincinnati, Penn State, those are arguably all top 10 defenses. This week they get a very different test where Michigan State's offense has been explosive, so many big plays, a lot of weapons you have to contain, but this is not a defense-first team. I, I mean, they've gotten, they've they've done some good things on the defensive side of the ball. They've played from in front, and that's where that bend-but-don't-break style has worked. But there's a potential here for a get-right game for the Indiana offense just by having a chance to breathe against a team that – is not so loaded on defense that that to Chris's point that Hendershot can't work across the middle, um, that Ty Fryfogel can't you know break one instead of just just kind of producing. And they're coming off a bye week, so you know if they are in a, a state here where they've got to turn to Jack Tuttle, I mean this is a better spot to do that in with a backup with two weeks to kind of process that that potential and, and get him ready and maybe do some things that Michigan State's not expecting because for two straight years Michigan State's played Michael Penix and this is just a little bit different of a kind of a secondary pitch to throw at them yeah you combine the strength of schedule and what Chris said about Tom Allen and having his Indiana defense ready for situations and that's probably why the line is only four and a half in favor of Michigan State which feels crazy based on the results and the way Michigan State's scoring points. I mean, my initial reaction was that line was pretty low, but uh, I will give my prediction at the end of the podcast, as always. So I think we're set for – I mean, are we set for a decent game Saturday, or is it another Spartan blowout? Obviously, I think Spartan fans and the coaching staff would like to see them handle Indiana pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, does the Michigan State offensive train here continue? Are we going to see four big plays of, what, 50 yards or more, 60 yards or more? That's, that's where I think 
that's where I think the Allen factor comes in. I, I, I think they're going to be very well prepared, especially with an extra week off, whether they have the horses to do it, like, like Nate said with Mullen, if he's out or if he's significantly limited, um, that I think is, is the big difference because I, I again, I, I think this is still going to, I think Michigan state's going to get their points. Um, but I do think that, you know, if, if you're coming in and expecting him, expecting this steamroll, um, I, I think you might get disappointed. Yeah, it's, I'm so curious about the Mullen part because Indiana is a defense that's built very back to front. And the games where they have really uh, looked good or challenged teams over the past couple of years, I think back to like against Ohio State, they gave up a lot of points, but they were able to turn over Justin Fields multiple times. That was the first Justin Fields rattled game out there. And that that kind of a scenario is not – we haven't seen it this year that Michigan State's run into with – with Peyton Thorne, where it's a where it's a turnover, it's or a, you know, it's it's this real adversity of not just drive stalling, but you know, bad turnover turning the other way. But it's not like it can't necessarily happen with the right defensive game plan, the right playmakers in the secondary. I don't think they've faced that test on the back end of defenses. Nebraska is very good up front. Um, Rutgers does some good things on defense, but they got torched by Ohio State's skill players too. I think if Mullen plays, this will be. I definitely think you could argue this will be Michigan State's best test yet of a defensive uh, backfield, both in talent, but also the fact that you're on the road and you're against an aggressive, uh, good defensive mind like Tom Allen to where um, it, it would be a good test if, if, if Peyton Thorne or in this offense in general, if they have a couple things not go their way where they, they're used to creating the explosive plays. Now there's a big play that goes against them, whether it's you know big sacks or turnovers, how they respond to that. Um, that's what I'm really interested to see because they're always playing in front right now. It's kind of allowed their offense to get maybe a little lulled to sleep in the second half, but um, this could be a very different game if I, if Indiana is just able to make a couple plays in the back end, maybe get a lead in the second half and see see what Michigan State's offense does. Let me switch gears here for a little bit. I want to talk about Kenneth Walker. I think we sort of kind of seen the Heisman chatter around him. I mean, it's been there since the first week, but I would say over the past six days, five days. It's really ramped up here. I know I think he's up to third or fourth in the Heisman odds, depending on your sports gambling app of choice. Um, and I think some of the national pundits who are doing their top three Heisman races are picking, you know, their candidate overall, you know, their number one candidate overall. And Walker has appeared number one in a number of those two. So, I mean, I, we're halfway through the season and, and we're at this point, which <laughs> you told me this two months ago, I just would have told you you were insane, but Kenneth Walker, Heisman Trophy winner, Michigan State. I mean, I think it's a realistic thing that we might be saying here in two months' time. Well, the back half of the schedule, he's got to be able to put him up because those are the marquee games. I mean, it's right. you need that consistency that he's shown over the games that that he's produced it. I mean, he, he his big games were against Northwestern and Rutgers. Now, they're they're down, but they're still conference games. So I think that's that carries – more weight than if you would have put up that kind of numbers against Youngstown State and Western Kentucky. But the the way that the Heisman works in terms of national viewers, and I think Michigan State's getting out in front of this because they really haven't had a a guy since, what, Charles Rogers maybe, um, maybe all the way back to Lorenzo White um, that's been in this kind of conversation. And – you know, they understand that, you know, you have to be in the uh, in the minds and eyes of voters before you get into November. And uh, that's, I think, 
what you think about it, the, the big games are all in November. It's Michigan, it's Ohio State, and it's Penn State. So if he's able to put up the numbers against both of those teams, win or lose, uh, you know, and, and at the end of the year, plus the Michigan game, I think that you, you've got a, a more than realistic chance. I mean, the odds right now, I mean, you know, you don't put up the kind of numbers and highlight real plays that he has and, and not draw people's attention, particularly with the circumstances of the transfer and the, everything MSU did in the portal. But on top of that, you also have to have those kind of big plays or big moments in the, the biggest games of, of the season. And, you know, that's not to be smirch Indiana because he runs for 150 yards and it's Indiana. That's more than Indiana gives up right now. Um, but that's a solid, more than a solid day uh, against that defense. And, but he's got to be able to do that and replicate it against the bigger teams just from a perception standpoint of the voters. Yeah, I think there's two reasons that are really helping out Kenneth Walker right now and letting this thing take off. Number one is that it's very easy to see him from the outside as the fix for Michigan State. Obviously, there's more than than just him that's made this team better, but people just remember this team was dreadful last year, and there's there's the zero rushing touchdowns from a running back and an offense that couldn't do anything about against anyone um, really at all last Other than season. Michigan. <laughs> Other than Michigan, which was a couple couple of big plays. And the but, first half against Penn State, too. Yeah. All of a sudden, they drop in this guy, this transfer from Wake Forest, who leads the nation in rushing by more than 100 yards, who's averaging seven yards a carry, and now they're 6-0. and So it's very easy to just draw a very easy conclusion right there. The other thing is that this Heisman race in general just feels so uncertain and wide open. I mean, just last year at this time, you obviously we had Devontae Smith. We also had just such big names that you could see putting up dominant seasons like Najee Harris and Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne and Justin Fields. And this year you look at the list of the guys out there. I mean, people thought this was going to be like the Spencer Rattler year and he might not even have a job anymore. Some of these other names are just so young, whether it's Bryce Young or CJ Stroud or Bajan Robinson or Trevian Henderson. I mean, these are guys that are, it's hard to see a freshman, which most of those guys are winning this thing. And then some of the other names, it's easy to just argue against them. I mean, uh, Matt Corral at Ole Miss. I mean, how many games is that team going to necessarily end up winning in the gauntlet of the SEC? Uh, Desmond Ritter is obviously a great quarterback and Cincinnati is having a great season, but is Cincinnati going to have the Heisman Trophy winner? So there's just enough of a door cracked here where if a guy like Kenneth Walker is on a team that, you know, I, I don't, I, I still think people are waiting to see, like Chris said, them do this against top teams. They are not likely to be a playoff team, but I guess we never know. But there's such a door here where he could still have a dominant season for a team that may not necessarily have to be in the top four of the polls because there's such a door open here versus picking just some freshman quarterback of a team that got into the playoff uh, because they have really good skill players like like you're seeing on a couple of these teams. And when you're talking about winning the Heisman Trophy, you mentioned Desmond Ritter. Uh, you know, guys outside of those power schools that win it, you know, the Andre Wares, the Ty Demers, you know, if you will, those are guys that just put up monster, monster numbers. And Desmond Ritter really doesn't have the monster numbers, even though he's kind of up there in the top seven, top eight in terms of the Heisman rankings. And I have to admit, I'm surprised to see C.J. Stroud up there. I mean, he is he's third right now on the on the betting apps for your for your Heisman favorite. And he's had a really good last couple of games where he did struggle a little bit out of the gate. I think that just goes what you were saying, Nate, about how uh this it still seems pretty wide open overall. Yeah, well like that kind of situation. So CJ Stroud's third and then I think just behind Kenneth Walker on these odds is Travion Henderson. And then you add in the fact that Ohio State has two first round receivers. So it's just kind of like which 
it's kind of like Alabama last year. Which guy do you give it to? And what happened at Alabama was, uh, you know, Jalen Waddle ended up getting hurt. So it opened a little bit more of a door for Devonta Smith. And then Devonta Smith was that historically great. Um, I just think the fact that C.J. Stroud is in third, for all those reasons you mentioned, he even missed a game so far. Um, that just kind of shows you how wide open this is, that this is not that hard for someone to rise up if they just continue stacking this together. If you see Kenneth Walker, like the longer this goes on, that Kenneth Walker is a leading rusher in the nation, the louder this case gets just by the fact that no one else is out there taking it away from him. And in fact, from a production, if you mix production and uh, team performance so far, I mean, he's he's probably the favorite if you use that formula. It's just they're right now they're predicting forward of how this is going to end up, which obviously goes right back to how he plays against Michigan, Penn State, and Ohio State. I mean, I th- I think Walker's got a, a real chance to win it just ba- you know just based on everything we're saying here. A lot of unknowns going on at this point. Chris, uh, I want to ask you to go back into uh, the MSU history vault here. Was Tony Mandarich? Like, uh, I don't know if he was a finalist, but was he in the top 10 in the voting or anything like that? I feel like he, I think he was in the top 10 in the voting, but, uh, or maybe even just outside of that. Yeah. Um, you know, which for an offensive lineman is almost like winning the award anyways. You know, you get up there and, and mention in that breath, but, um, you know, that the, the I'm trying to think, you know, it, it, there hasn't been a lot. I mean, Sherman Lewis back in the day, um, you know, you, you had so many great players on those 65 and 66 teams that, you know, none of them really, because they were all so good collectively and individually, they didn't really get into that mix. Um, you know, and Lorenzo White obviously twice was was in the mix in, in 86 and 87 or 85 and 87. Um, but, I mean, it's been few and far between. Charles Rogers, I mean, you know, if Rodgers plays on a better team, maybe he wins it because he was head and shoulders in a lot of ways above other players at that point as a as an athlete and everything else. But, you know, the Heisman voting can be weird because it does not necessarily sometimes represent the best player in college football as it sometimes ends up being the best player in college football on a winning team. Like the year Jason White from Oklahoma won it. So I went back and looked. Mandarich finished sixth in the voting in 1988. And then Percy Snow finished eighth uh, in the Heisman oh, yeah. voting back in uh, 1989. So I thought that was uh, pretty crazy. I, I mean, I knew he was a very high draft pick, but I didn't realize he was that far up on, on the Heisman vote. So I remember when Derrick Henry won the Heisman over Christian McCaffrey. That was a clear example to me of people saying, well, this guy's team is better and he's the best player on the best team. So we're going to give it to him because that was the year that Christian McCaffrey broke Barry Sanders record for all purpose yards in the season. And anytime you break Barry Sanders' record, I think that's a pretty good Heisman argument. And uh, what's good for Kenneth Walker is there's not a uh, – right now so far, there's not a Christian McCaffrey or someone like that who's not also a freshman, which is what uh, Bajan Robinson, Travion Henderson, and guys like that are. Yeah, the most recent guys that have finished in the top ten are Javon Ringer in 2008 and Connor Cook in 2015. Yeah, I was going to mention Connor Cook. No. But she finished ninth, and, you know, that's – you know, the – there's there were a lot of weapons around him too. I mean, you can't discount what Jeremy Langford did in those years to help Connor Cook to his numbers. So, but I mean, that's that's a, a great case in point. Is and that's the thing is when we look at at Walker. I mean, he is he better than Javon Ringer who was who got a tenth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, is he better than Langford who had the NFL career and 
And is the last thousand yard rusher to me? Yes. Um, I think he's got more speed, more wiggle and everything else. I mean, you know, he, he combines a lot of the things you see with, you saw with ringer and you saw with, um, you know, uh, all the best Langford, um, Lorenzo white, he's got that power and, and leg drive through contact and the ability to run over guys, um, and the shiftiness of guys like Le'Veon Bell and, and Cedric Irvin. I mean, to me, uh, in, in the 25, 30 years that I've been around Michigan state football, Walker right now is the best back that I have seen. That doesn't mean he's the best in program history because I think there are, there are guys in the 50s and 60s and really even Eric Allen in the early 70s that you could say and, and make a case for. But um, to me, a, as good as Bell was and then Baker and Caper and all those other guys, uh, he blends so much so much of those things uh, into one package that, that we haven't seen watching Michigan State in quite a while. It's also the environment he's in that I think is so nice is having Jalen Naylor and Jaden Reed on the outside so that teams, even though this case is building for Kenneth Walker, everyone knows when they're playing Michigan State, this guy is the leading rusher in the nation. There's still only so many resources you're going to devote to stopping that when you've got those guys who can um, take one play to the house like like Jalen Naylor and Jane Reed have both done this season. And yet even when teams start to do it, like I think Rutgers started to do it, that's when you see Jalen Naylor go for – what almost 200 yards and a half. So um, he's just in a really nice setting here and it's, but it's still going to come down to obviously performance against those top teams, but also the ability to win these games because in the second half, the Kenneth Walker argument to, to maintain his spot as the leading rusher is going to come down a lot of how many games do they lead in? How many times are they going to him to kind of milk this out versus do they fall behind by, you know, 14 to 20 points against Ohio state or, or Penn state. And are they having to throw to get back in it? Um, because, you know, and also do they get, it's going to be very hard for them to do this, but what would help his case a lot is if they get that 13th game in the big 10 title game and one, one more game to add to the totals, but one more spotlight game as well, because um, right now he's in this spot because there haven't been that many spotlight moments for players either. A lot of non-conference games and whatnot, but uh, second half of the season is if we're weighing it, it's almost like that's going to count for 70% of the argument versus, you know, we're at the 50, uh, 50% mark right now. Yeah. The, the hilarious part of course, is that Lorenzo white had Andre Risen, but you know, they didn't throw the ball yeah. <laughs> even having Andre Risen, if they'd had, you know, uh, and McAllister was good for what they wanted to do, but if they had a quarterback, they could throw it around. And if Perlis uh, would have taken the, th- away the three yards in a cloud of dust mentality um that that offense probably could have been a lot more dynamic back in mid 80s late 80s you know with with the rose bowl team it'd be interesting as if Jaden reed gets into this conversation at all uh because he has the punt return element and he's taken two back to the house already one one of a game basically or at least got it to overtime so they could win a, a game they would have probably lost otherwise but um, I think he's going to still end up. I know Jill Naylor has been the guy the past couple of weeks. But when 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 the going gets tough, Peyton Thorne's going to look to his guy a little bit more, I think. So I think Jaden Reed's numbers will be there on the receiving end. And so can he can he keep adding to these totals as a return man? And you combine those two. And when we're talking about the door being open, and even if it gets to the point where they are having to come back on an Ohio State or Penn State, that helps Jaden Reed's case as well. So it's two of these guys who are – I guess in some ways you could say are going to kind of steal stats from each other, but they also kind of help each other out just by the fact that, you know, either guy can go off because you can only really defend one at a time. 
Yeah, and but that's the problem with with the Heisman voting is you know not everybody's watching every game and they see these numbers fluctuating back and forth with with them among the voters and all they'll look at is the pure stats sometimes you know that that's you know both of them are are such dynamic weapons that you know you're right I think they cancel each other out if you if you're a voter and you're looking at it and you're saying well it is Naylor doing so well because of Reed is Reed doing so much because of Naylor. Um, or is both are are the numbers that both are putting up all relying on how much Walker is is kind of the central focus of defenses? I mean that's you know that and quite honestly, I mean that's you know the, the Walker being able to run the ball is the biggest difference from a year ago. Naylor was there. I mean, yeah, quarterback too. I think that's obvious. But I mean, they were they were hitting deep passes last year too with those guys. You know, and and when Ricky White was there, they were hitting deep passes on Michigan. But the difference between this year's team and, and this is one Walker's ability to run the ball, but two, the offensive line is doing a much better job of creating creases for him. So, you know, and that not only that, but his ability to—it's not like they're big creases. Something not like—I mean, not like the one he had for the ninety-four yarder. A lot of the creases that he has are smaller and are on him to kind of get to and through, which he, which to me I think is what makes him such a special player and why you would consider him for a Heisman because it's not like he's he's not running through the, you know, the the great lines that Emmett Smith had here. You know, he's he's running through tight windows, making guys miss, running through contact. So that that I think, you know, will come into play for him. I kind of want to move on here to keep on the offense, but I want to talk about uh, Peyton Thorne. I know a lot of people – were up in arms last week when PFF uh, had him ranked as their 53rd, uh, you know, based on their grades or whatever, 53rd best quarterback in college football last season. Then he has the monster game uh, this past week against Rutgers. And, you know, talking about the previous Heisman thing, he's the next highest uh, Spartan who is, he's tied for 17th of plus 10,000 with a gaggle of other people, other players in college football. So, um, I mean, do you guys, the 53rd thing is, seems a little uh, disrespectful is not the right word, but, Whatever the grading system you use seems to seems to be and it prove accurate kind of way he does on the field. But how do you where do you feel like he is at his development? Um, I think he is just in a great. He's like the right guy for the right time for Michigan State right now. So when they were this spring and they had a battle between Anthony Russo and and Peyton Thorne, it was kind of this battle between this guy who's played a lot and this guy who hasn't. Guy who is we know has the big arm in Anthony Russo, but you know he's prone to mistakes and if he's doing it. You know, in his fifth year in college, why would he not do it in his sixth year? Do we trade that for the explosive plays? And I think ultimately what it came down to is a couple of things. Number one, uh, Thorne's legs are, are a nice little kind of way to get him out of trouble when, when things aren't going perfectly. But number two is just he is safer with it. He's the son of a coach, and he just kind of is a, a little safer operator back there. And at the end of the day, this offense is all about those three weapons we keep talking about, Kenneth Walker, Jalen Naylor, Jaden Reed. So you need a quarterback who can operate more as a point guard um, to those three guys than maybe the guy who has to carry them as, as you know, you don't have to win with the biggest arm in the world when you can – um, get it out quickly to these guys and just kind of play mistake free. So not take it away from Peyton Thorne because I think he absolutely has grown. I think he's thrown a he's he's shown growth as a uh, just in his arm and that throw to Jalen Naylor last week that where Jalen Naylor caught on the sidelines and turns back and that was a great throw over pretty good coverage. 
Um, so he's he's coming along nicely, but he's in such a good situation, which is stunning to say because last year was maybe the worst situation for quarterbacks, and that's the biggest difference between uh, Peyton Thorne last year to this year. He's not that much different as a as a physical specimen, but everything around him is better, and he's able to play in this situation very nicely. Yeah, from everything that I heard last year, he was turning the ball over quite a bit in practice, and that really limited him and limited the coach's trust in it, I think, to the point where that's why they did go out and get Russo. Um, and, you know, again, you're still a redshirt freshman at that point. You know, you think about where Connor Cook was, as we mentioned him before, his, in his development as a redshirt freshman, um, it wasn't until the end of that year that he played really his way in, onto the field and all of a sudden played into a quarterback controversy going into 2013. As as his sophomore season, um, with how he played in the Buffalo Wild Wings Bowl, and I think a lot of ways, I think that that we talked earlier about the the offense, the, the games that they did have, they had the Michigan game, but that's first half of the Penn State game, I think gave coaches a lot more confidence in what Peyton Thorne could be, and to me, the ceiling is dramatically higher for for a guy like that. Who who can see the field and understand what to do than than a, a guy like Russo, who's as, as Nate mentioned, is in his sixth year, fourth different offensive coordinator, and and has been prone to mistakes. And that's listen, Thorne's done a great job of minimizing the mistakes. Um, you know, between he had the one pick against Rutgers, where he threw behind uh, I think it was uh, uh, Jordan Simmons on a screen, and it got picked off, and he had the one deep ball. Uh, in the Nebraska game on the first drive, but he played fairly mistake free. He he hasn't put the ball on a turf, uh, which I think is a, a big thing. Um, that was one of his issues last year. You know, you're seeing the improved strength with that. And then you know, you mentioned about the one the the one touchdown that Naylor, you know, where he dropped it into the bread basket on on a fade over the shoulder. But I, the first play, the first touchdown to me was why he won the job. Um, where, you know, it's coming out of play action. They pump down the line to, to read, but then the rush comes on him and he shuffles up and moves up, shuffles over and up in the pocket and hits, hits Naylor in stride. Um, that's, that's next level kind of play for a quarterback. I mean, for not just sensing the rush, but avoiding it and still keeping your head up and eyes downfield. I mean, and then delivering in stride. I mean, that to me was as good as that one throw that you mentioned, Nate, was because it was. Uh, that to me was the more impressive thing because, you know, just like with Walker, you see all the different parts. That to me was the one part where you see what his his legs can do, not necessarily from a run standpoint, but from an evasion standpoint under pressure. And he was calm in the pocket, too. So that's, you know, you see all those traits coming together. And I think he could be one of those guys. Um, I mean, you, you know, we talk about this this team, what the ceiling is for, for this team. I, I'm not necessarily sure what the ceiling is for Peyton Thorne. Helps to have those weapons, um, no question. You know, maybe one of them or both of them end up going to the NFL after this year, um, and, and we find out a little bit more about him. But uh, what we're seeing right now, um, we're seeing a quarterback that's playing – at an all Big Ten level, maybe not first team, but but right there knocking on that first team. Yeah, his legs are definitely what are showing you that he's more than just 
the weapons on this offense that are around him right now. So I didn't mean to, to phrase it totally taking that away from him. Oh, yeah. because, um, one of the things that, that I think is really becoming huge at quarterback these days is the ability to get out of structure and win out of structure, but you're still disciplined enough to stay and play within structure. So when he scrambles out, this isn't becoming, you know, backyard football, Johnny Manziel stuff. This is still, I'm just getting away from the pressure to buy a little bit more time and then look downfield. And at this point, if you can still at that point cover Jalen Naylor and Jaden Reed, then I guess you have an amazing defense and you took this away. But that's going to beat most teams, and that's what they need out of him. Talk to uh, Jaden Reed uh, yesterday for a little while, and he said that like everyone makes a big deal, obviously. It was almost a drinking game out of the references to them playing in high school and growing up together in middle school. But he says what gets overlooked is the year they had on scout team when Jaden Reed was – uh, transfer and Peyton Thorne was a red shirt and the fact that they were able to go every day and they wanted to get better against what at that point was a pretty darn good defense guys like Josiah Scott and Shakir Brown and um, David Dowell and um, you know they it's one thing to do it in high school and, and to have chemistry and all that but they they challenged themselves day by day to do that and they felt like that kind of um, obviously built their connection but it built a little bit of calmness and thorn or at least his ability to bounce back when things don't go well is that there were times when he he got beat where i mean he got picked off in moments like that that may be some of what you're referring to chris last year when he gets picked off in practice but he built this sort of response to plays that don't go great to still go back to the structure and not have one mistake say okay well now i gotta just scramble around and try something different so he's just staying the course really really well and it's all come together you know what the interesting part about that is what what reed said is in being on the scout team, you're replicating opponents' offenses. Well, Michigan State's offense in 2019 when they were on the scout team wasn't necessarily doing anything close to what they're doing right now, but the opposing offenses were. So there's, there could be some carryover from that, but kind of just yeah, – you know, Running any offense other yeah. than what Michigan State was running is probably good for them. Yeah, but uh, you know, just to you know, put a, a bow on, on the, the situation about his legs as well – I think when you see, and he, you know, in those RPOs, he's able to pull the ball and run, and he can pick up big chunks of yards. But what I'm interested in is seeing him use his legs to evade pressure, get to the outside, and if the the if there is no play, he's throwing it away. It's decision making under pressure and and calmness and poise. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned he's a, a coach's son, um, but the speed of the game isn't phasing him anymore. And I think that does take time as a young quarterback, particularly when you're adjusting to to playing in the Big Ten and you know making that that transition from backup to starter. Um, we're halfway through the season, and to me, he's probably ahead of schedule for a lot of the things that we've seen. Yeah, and that also goes back a little bit to the point about having those weapons in the offense. That just keeps the trust in this structure overall. Last year, they didn't have that. It felt like at times guys had to – you saw this Rocky Lombardi a lot. They felt like they had to try and win when it wasn't there because what else do you have to fall back on this offense? And I think you're – I hear a lot about this with C.J. Stroud at Ohio State is that they're telling him if it's not there on first down, throw it away. You know why? Because it's second and ten, and we still have better weapons than they do. Like once in a while – yeah, once in a while the defense does win. All right, tip your hand – you know, tip your cap to them, but we're going to go line up in second and ten, and 
you try and guard Reed and Naylor and Walker and do it three straight plays, odds are you're not going to be able to do it. And that's where being a coach's son and, and having played enough to um, to understand these guys around him is really, uh, I think, the key. All right, well, let's move on to our final segment, which is predictions. Nate, what do you think will happen on Saturday afternoon at Memorial Stadium in Bloomington, Indiana? This one's pretty tough for me to pick because I do think this could be a game where uh, the script is not in their favor in the second half if they fall back uh, and Jack Tuttle is able to make some plays. But because of the uncertainty that's going on with health, especially with Tywin Mullen, which I think is really going to decide a lot of this game, I'm, I'm going to give the edge to Michigan State as the healthy team that's rolling that I think Indiana will challenge a little bit, but not quite to the level of some of the teams left on their schedule. So I think it will be a close game. I think their offense will have to counterpunch in the second half, the way that they have not done and not had to do in really many games this season. So I'm going to go with, uh, with Michigan state coming away in this one. And I will say they're going to win uh 30 to 27. Wow. Chris. I agree with a lot of that. Um, I actually have 30 to 17 because I do think that Michigan State's defense uh, is better equipped to to handle this because Indiana can't run the ball and it, they'll be able to shut down their run game, which allows them to focus more on improving their pass defense and and making Tuttle beat them. And I'm not sure Tuttle can beat them. Um, and I do think that you, you're starting to see some things. I think you started to see it with Marquis Lowry coming in last week where the size on the edge is, is starting to be a little more distinct. The, the physicality uh, at that spot, I think, is, is, is growing with him there and, and Kimbrough you know, staying in the mix with Williams. But I think those two guys in particular, uh, Williams and, and uh, Lowry, bring a different kind of presence to bottle guys up. To me, it's, it still comes down to, to shutting them down over the middle and shutting down Hendershot, probably more so than Freifold to me. And I, I, you know, and I think from an offensive standpoint, like I said, the Tom Allen factor is, is big. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, he's, he's, he's got that similar kind of coaching profile as as Shiano does. And he's got the defense will keep them in it early, but I do think Michigan state's offense wears them down. And like I said, 30 to 17, I'm going to go a a little, a little bigger than what, Chris said, I, I continue to believe in this Spartan team, and I just think the injuries and Indiana's sort of struggles on, in a couple areas are going to continue this area. And I've got, I've got the Spartans winning thirty-one to ten. So we'll see. Uh, we'll mm. we'll see what happens. All right. Any final thoughts before we check out? So if they win oh, thirty-one to ten and they're undefeated going into the Michigan game, coming off a bye. Um, I just hope they don't put this game at night because there's going to be some drunk fans. But it would be fun to watch, though, just the build up to that. It's been um, it's been a while since fans could get excited about really anything with this team, but especially this offense. So you're absolutely right that the uh, the weapons are hard to bet against, and we haven't seen a team that's talented enough to beat them yet. And I, I ultimately don't think Indiana will be either. Yeah, I also just think like Nebraska's defense did a pretty good job, and I just think Nebraska's defense is better than Indiana's and you kind of factor that in a little bit and give the Spartans a couple extra points there. And I think that's just kind of how it goes out. Yeah. To be fair, I checked out a while ago anyway. So, (laughs) Uh, but no, I mean, this is, listen, you get through this game, you get your bye week, you try and get some other guys healthy. Um, That's to me, the more important thing. You don't worry about the Michigan game. I, I don't see this being a trap game just simply because 
everybody knows what happened last year and everybody knows uh, the history that that is there that this is a homecoming game for Indiana that it's a rivalry trophy game uh, the old brass platoon which we had not mentioned until now which we which reminds me we haven't mentioned Western Michigan football so there's your obligatory Western Michigan reference right yeah. now but um you know I I, I think that you know, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is they got a, they've, they've had a new coordinator on the offensive side. So that's, you know, for Indiana, that's that's a little different from this year to last last year to this year. So, um, you know, I think this I, I think, like I said, this is this is one of those games that you get through if you're Michigan State and then you worry about preparing for all the wrinkles and healing that needs to happen for the Michigan game with your bye week. That's ultimately why I think it's going to be close, is I do think this is kind of a survive-it game for Michigan State before the bye week on the road against a team coming off a bye. And the new coordinator thing is kind of what I think has thrown this in a wrench in all this, is they've got a new offensive coordinator, and having to go out against Penn State, Iowa, and Cincinnati in your first few games, I mean, that is disastrous. So I think the bye week just comes at a nice time for Indiana to reset a little bit. If they do have to go to Jack Tuttle, at least they've had two weeks to kind of process this, throw out what's not working as well, come up with a good plan. But I mean, listen, they got Michigan state players all saying the same thing, you know, well, Indiana does what they do and they're going to only be able to do certain things and within the structure of their scheme, that's what a bye week does. It allows you to disrupt that. And from an internal standpoint and, and come out, you know, maybe they come out heavy. I doubt it, but you know, you just don't know coming out of a bye week. But you know, whatever it is, it's going to be on on Scotty Hazelton to to adjust quickly to it and, and not not let because uh, what happened, I think, at Rutgers um, where the offense came out early um, and 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 really kind of started to stick at the Michigan State. You can't have that, I think, against Indiana because I think Indiana's got more weapons than than Rutgers does on the offensive side by far. Yeah, for sure. But also, I think Michigan State's got a counterpunch in them that we just haven't seen the second half. I think this is a week it gets going a little bit because there are past versions of this Michigan State offense where if they had to, if they had to drive down at the end of the game and and if they have to launch a seventy-yard touchdown drive to win, you didn't have a lot of belief that they would do it. This one, we haven't seen them have to do that yet. I guess Nebraska they didn't went to overtime, but I think they've got that in them for a game, and I think that's it wasn't the offense that did it. That was the special teams that did it. Yeah. Really, and quite frankly, they haven't had that kind of offense at Michigan State since maybe I'd say probably 2015. I mean, even the 2017 team that played well didn't necessarily have that counter when you saw it. Didn't once they got to the Ohio State game, you saw kind of it was what it was, and then everything after that was you know you you, you saw what happened the two years against Arizona State and, and some of those other games that just kind of slipped by um you know i think this team's built differently but we'll see just remarkable that we're describing a michigan state offense in these terms just 12 months after what we saw last year and for really five years before that so uh that to me is the most incredible thing thank you for joining us for this edition of spartan speak a production of the lansing state journal detroit free press and the usa today network if you enjoy this podcast and the work surrounding it please consider subscribing you can follow our coverage at lsj.com freep.com and on twitter at nate Atkins underscore at chris Solari, at phil underscore friend and to lsj green white thanks for listening
just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.